the VCA Voice podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marie Curl. Our goal with the VCA Voice is to showcase how VCA Animal Hospitals is taking care of the future of veterinary medicine. We'll bring our purpose to life through meaningful conversations about care, our culture, and the communities we serve. On today's episode, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Rocky McKelvey, who's a Regional Medical Director for VCA Animal Hospitals. Hi, Rocky. How are you? Hey, Marie. Doing great. Well, I'm so happy that you agreed to join today, and we've got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to jump right in. To start off, if you could tell me about your journey in veterinary medicine and include your time with VCA and your current position. Sure. I went to vet school. I mean, grew up at the racetrack around Oklahoma, Texas, went to vet school thinking I was going to work on horses and be at the racetrack my whole career. That didn't happen. I spent a little bit of time there and decided I did not like it at all and started my own practice, oh, six, eight months after I graduated. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that time was doing a lot of horse work and some small animal work on the side. And like so many people, uh, that small animal stuff just grew and grew and grew and the horses got further and further and further away. Uh, so it didn't take long before I gave up the horses and focused on small animal medicine. Uh, practice did really well. Uh, I think when VCA came in and talked to us about buying it, it had grown to six doctors. Wow. I was the first practice that VCA bought in Texas, and that kind of morphed into this job as an RMD, which regional medical director, uh, because of the way the Practice Act was set up in Texas at the time, mm-hmm. back in 96, 97. So how has the regional medical director role changed over time? Back in those days, you know, I think we each had like nine or 10 practices apiece. And Mm -hmm. so we were much more involved with actual the day-to-day practice. It was kind of an ill-defined role for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Tams was always kind of our laser focus, guiding light that, you know, said, hey, you guys focus on the medicine. Make sure the doctors are practicing the best medicine they possibly can for the community. And that guiding light kind of has pushed me through my whole career. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we still, thank God, have that same light for the regional medical director role that just take care of the medicine and everything else will take care of itself. Yeah, I completely agree. As we get together as a group now, it's what we spend really all of our time talking about is how can we make sure that we're providing the best quality medicine and care in our hospitals and supporting our doctors and certainly now our technicians, which is completely appropriate as well. Yes, that's that's been one of the best improvements I've seen the last few years is the focus we have on our licensed veterinary technicians. With your time as a regional medical director, what does support look like for hospitals in, in this role? And can you give an idea of how much time is spent in hospitals with your teams? Back in 1996, we were focusing on such basic things as putting IV catheters in surgery wow. and actually doing pain management when you do a spay mm-hmm. or neuter. The rank and file veterinarians I dealt with didn't really buy into that concept. They were like, our clients won't pay for it. Our clients don't want this. They can go down the street and get a spay for $35 or whatever it was mm-hmm. at the time. And so a lot of times early on, I would actually go in and work as a relief veterinarian and just show them that I could do it. I mean, that that their clients would accept it. And that was the most effective way, I think, that I ever served as a regional medical director. 
Mm -hmm. uh, continued doing that role for quite a while till we got up to about, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 hospitals in my region. And then it just got harder and harder to, you know, cover all the release shifts and mm -hmm. do all that sort of stuff. But I still, up until really COVID time, made it a point to practice in my hospitals for at least five to 10 days a year, just go in and mm -hmm. fill a shift. And that's, you know, that's how I could be most effective. I, I enjoy being in the hospitals, being in the treatment room, talking mm -hmm. to the doctors and talking to the technicians. shift gears just a little bit now. I know that you have been a very strong advocate of the VCA Academy, which is our new graduate mentorship program. Can you share some of your experiences with this program? Yeah. I, I mean, even when I had my own practice, I always loved hiring new graduates fresh out of school. I learned as much from them as they probably ever learned from me. So I've always been a big, big advocate of, of new graduates coming into practices and mentoring them up. So with the mentorship program, I just make it a point as they would come on board to really encourage them to visit more VCA hospitals during their mentorship period. I learn something every time I go into a new hospital, pick mm -hmm. up a new technique, pick up a new drug they're using, just see a way they talk to clients. So that's been the biggest thing that that I've tried to do with the mentees. And as far as just seeing success stories, I could go from Jason Hardiman, who came to us as an extern mm. uh, at one hospital. They're like, hey, you need to go meet this young man. He's he's going to be something special. The regional operations director, Lisa, and I took Jason to lunch, talked to him, convinced him to come on to actually my old hospital that had an opening. And I mean, he's just been a rock star there. Clients love him. You know, he's he's made a career there. Amanda Tabone is another one that I pick out that Amanda I've known since she was probably 10, 12 years old because she's a daughter of one of our other medical directors. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was our rep at Texas A&M. Mm -hmm. And uh, she came on as a mentee. Now she's actually mentoring the new people that come on year to year. She's one of my go-to people. And again, she's a rock star. I mean, I could sit here and take up an hour going through different people who just had an impact, but I love it. I hope we continue it. I hope it grows. It's a great recruiting tool. I mean, it's, it's, it's how veterinary medicine should be done. What are some of the challenges that new graduates have upon entering practice? And are they really that much different than when you and I started 30 or 40 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they are quite a bit different than... When you and I started, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, it, they seem like they're a little bit more afraid to make mistakes and uh, a little bit more worried about the board, a little bit more worried about, of course, social media. We didn't have social media. I think that's been. Yeah. What was that? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's been a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the poor doctors at COVID time that for two years went to vet school and never saw a lot of clients and then came into our hospitals. And we're doing everything curbside, that was a huge disadvantage for them. So once we went back to actually seeing clients across the table, there's been a big learning curve for some of them, how to manage their time, how to interact with clients. A lot of them have not grown up in 
the service industry have not ever had a client facing or, you know, customer facing type job. Mm-hmm. And so teaching doctor communication skills for them in the exam room, I think is one of the key roles for, for my position. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. And I'm excited about the update of the doctor and technician communication programs that are coming. What are some of the commonalities of your mentorship hospitals and your mentors that ensure success of their mentees? The commonalities I see is the mentor really taking the time to sit down with the mentee and really have some focused, intentional time to talk to them. I mean, whether it's, you know, having a breakfast meeting once a week, just checking in on them, if it's just taking time out of the day, you know, an hour or so to discuss cases. But the commonality is that they do take the time to do it. Just like everything in life, communication is the key. I wanted to talk with you about is a a new parasite diagnostic test that was piloted in your hospitals in in your region. It was launched by Antec. It's called Keyscreen. You know, why why is this test important? What makes it different than our old ways of working? Yeah, I mean, we bought a hospital that was using a competitor lab that had this test available when our lab didn't have it available. And I was talking to the guy that was in charge of of the quality control in our lab. And I was like, how do I medically justify this? Because they're using a DNA test that is looking for the DNA of the parasites. And it's just a much more sensitive test than what we have. And he was very honest. And he said, look, that's a brilliant test. I don't think I would change them. And we didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. So whenever Antec brought this out, it was... God, it was, you know, such a blessing to my ears. Like, yes, finally I can get this in all my hospitals. And so we use Katie Trail because they were doing tons and tons of these tests and mm-hmm. and loved it. And we're finding about 30% more parasites and wow. using the old, uh, you know, standard flotation, centrifugation, things that we had at the time. So, you know, it was something that, boy, I jumped on board with both feet. As soon as it, it came out and tried to get this going in all of my hospitals, the advantages for it are, God, there's so many. I mean, it's uh, the deal with the Giardia where that was such a conundrum for doctors. They were, okay, they were doing these ELISA tests on Giardia and they were getting a positive Giardia test, but you didn't know if it was one you needed to be concerned about. You didn't know if it mm-hmm. was possibly zoonotic or if it was just one of those things that you could kind of ignore. So now with this key screen, it breaks it down into, is this one that you need to worry about that's possibly zoonotic? Or is it one that, yeah, that's just in dogs and cats and it's been not causing any problems with your stool? You can probably pretty much ignore it. So that's been huge. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had doctors tell me, hey, we had a kitten come in with runny, nasty, smelly diarrhea and ran a key screen. It came back as Tritrichomonas, which that's something oh, before. Oh, that one's really tough to find. Yeah. yeah. I mean, back in the day, probably we had done, you know, three or four office visits and, and several normal fecals and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff before we would 
break down and do that old pouch test that they had, which was so cumbersome and really didn't come to top of mind. So mm-hmm. now with this key screen, we're diagnosing those cases on the first visit. You know, but the hookworm issue, as we get more and more resistant hookworms, and we need to start changing our deworming strategies and doing all that sort of stuff, just identifying those cases. So there's a plethora of advantages to doing it. And, you know, me living in the South and Parasite Central, uh, mm-hmm. it's just kind of a no-brainer. This is a test we should be using. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that, just for, for listeners who may not know the difference on the fecal testing that we've had for, I don't even know how long, years and years and years, we've been looking for eggs from parasites. And if you see the eggs, you know that they're there. But if you don't see the eggs, you have no idea if the parasite is there and just not active. And some eggs you just don't see, like the tapeworm example that you had. And some parasites just don't pass eggs that frequently. So I, I would recommend as an internal medicine specialist with managing chronic diarrhea cases or recurrent diarrhea cases of doing three of those fecal flotation tests over a two-week period to try to identify <laughs> whipworms. How often did that get done? Yeah, it, it on well, honestly, by the time they come to see a specialist, they're pretty committed to doing oh, what well, you tell true. them. But right. but yeah, that but your frame of reference is different. Then <laughs> my frame of reference is different. But then the other alternative is, well, let's just deworm them for the parasite. And then you mentioned the resistance to the anti-parasite drugs, the anthelmintics that we're seeing in some parasites. So that's not necessarily a good solution either. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm really excited that we have this test available and that it's a much better quality diagnostic. Should this be the standard of care for all pets at all visits or are there particular populations that we want to focus on with this? You know, honestly, I'm pushing that with my doctors and all of my hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I were in practice, I would do it on every patient I saw. That would be mm-hmm. the only test I would have in my portfolio. You know, it's not anything that's ever mandated, but it's something I actually promote quite a bit, but I do really push all the doctors to at least do a key screen on their new puppies or new kittens and on any diarrhea cases, whether it's chronic or first time or whatever. I just, I just think that that's kind of a no brainer with our care club plans. The key screen sort of testing costs the same as a normal fecal. So to me, there's there's no reason not to run it. Mm-hmm. For me, medically, more information is always better. I can figure out what to do with that information as a doctor. So I'm pushed it for all tests, but I wouldn't say all my doctors are doing that. You've mentioned the term zoonotic several times in this conversation. In case we have people listening that are not familiar with that term, what does that what does that mean? That means it's a parasite or a, a virus or a bacteria or anything that can go from an animal to a person. And mm-hmm. those are the things that, you know, scare us. So I mean, yeah. I don't think people realize that one of the tenets of veterinary medicine is we're a very important link in public health. Yeah. Not only are we out there, you know, charged with taking care of the health of animals, we've got to take care of the health of people. So zoonosis is a real deal. And several of the parasites that our dogs and cats get can come to us and can be devastating when they come to us. How do we prevent parasites? I mean, animals will pick them up in the environment where they are, but what is the key to prevention then? I mean, the key really is just 
stay on your monthly parasiticides. We've, mm-hmm. since you and I started practicing, the <laughs> the number. <and laughs> so efficacy. many things have changed. <laughs> yeah, I mean. the da- Daily filarabits for heartworm. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Uh, uh-huh. So, you know, it's one of those things we have so many options. So to just keep your pets on your heartworm and parasiticide medication, that's the first step to really keeping the things down. But then to go along with it, you have to do at least yearly testing, probably preferably every six months testing, depending on where you are and all that sort of stuff. But it's one of those things, CAPC guidelines, which all the listeners out there, I would say go to capcvet.org and mm-hmm. that's a public site and you can read about yeah. all these parasites, see where they're prevalent, uh, see the prevalence in your area. But it's it's just one of those things that we just need to be vigilant and be testing. But monthly parasite prevention, especially in my part of the world, is is a must. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, there's been some some crazy things we've dealt with. Hurricane Katrina, I guess, was the one that was shocking. Yeah. Whenever we had started moving dogs all over from Louisiana, and nearly every one of those dogs was positive for heartworms and every other every other parasite you could think about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's out there. We just need to be aware of it and be constantly on the lookout for it. We are coming to the close of our time and you know we did spend some time talking about new graduates. Looking from your perspective, do you have any words of advice for people just entering the profession or considering veterinary medicine as a career? I mean, the biggest thing I can tell you is be a lifelong learner. Veterinary medicine is so interesting. It's evolved so, so much. There's something new to learn every day. And if you apply yourself, there's, again, it's so different these days. There's so many webinars. There's so many free CEs. There's, you can, you can sit in your office and learn thousands of things every day (laughs) and never have to go anywhere to learn it. And that keeps a joy in veterinary medicine. I can't believe it whenever I talk to some doctors, and granted it's a few, but that they think it's just a job. And it to me, it, it never has been a job. It's been a passion. It's been something that I've enjoyed. And and I think that's why. It's just because I've always been wanting to learn and get better every day. And I would say the other thing is once you learn something, share it with somebody else. And bring somebody else along and bring that next person along because you never know what they're going to do and how they can help you in your career down the road. In this role, I hopefully get to influence how veterinary medicine is practiced on a lot bigger scale than just my little hospital. Mm -hmm. And so part of the joy in my job these days is spreading the word and getting out there and hopefully affecting how a lot of veterinarians over the years do their daily practice. So that's what keeps me going every day. Oh, that is that is tremendous advice. I really appreciate you sharing that. Rocky, it is always such a pleasure to talk with you. And I, I learn things every time we talk. You are so wise and I appreciate you very much. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for inviting me. Enjoyed it. Holler anytime.
Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing. Don't forget to leave a review to let us know your thoughts and share the episode with friends. Follow VCA Animal Hospitals on social media at LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more inspiring stories, visit our website at vcavoice.com. 